Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Fish, And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 43rd episode of the Not A Cast entitled... Fifty Shades of Truth? Do we really have to go with that title? Okay, fine. Yep. Go with that title. <sighs> An analysis of Game of Thrones Editor 11 in which Ned Stark sits high atop the uncomfortable Iron Throne and does a bit of northern justice south of the neck. But were these the smart moves on Ned's part? There's really so much to talk about in this chapter. And we're going to be talking about it with our guest for the episode. You may know him from his chapter-by-chapter analysis of the series on Race for the Iron Throne, or from his essays over at Tower of the Hand, dealing with a lot of kings and leaders of the series, which is especially germane to the chapter today, or from his appearances on many other Song of Ice and Fire podcasts, from Game of Owns to Boar's Gore and Swords to many more. Welcome to the Nauticast, Stephen Adderwell. Hello, thank you for having me. Hey. I'm I'm glad to finally come here because my ears have been burning for about six months. <laughs> we, we like we said when we first started, we are we very much stand on the shoulders of giants, and we very much feel that you're one of the tallest of the giants that we stand whose shoulders we stand upon. Well said, oh, sir. Thank Agreed. You very much. Yeah, it's 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 a super awesome pleasure to have you here, especially in this chapter, which is just dripping with all the medieval and feudal and high and just kind of Renaissance-ish type politics that we see kind of unfolding in King's Landing. So it's awesome to have you here. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. So as we say on all episodes, this episode is brought, is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, and our newest member of the small council, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, very much, and welcome to the small council, Sir Keith J. Thank you, as always, and welcome, Sir Keith, and let's be clear, you report to me, not just <laughs> me. <laughs> That's true. And also, as we say in every podcast again, our spoiler warning, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So our, we have two questions this week for the, for the Nauticast, and it's a good thing we have two questions because we have an excellent cast of folks here who can talk about it. So our first question comes from Sir JB, one of our sworn swords, who asks, Hello. Hi. I have a question for the show. We know from the text that Loris deeply loved Renly, but I don't ever remember reading or hearing anything about Renly's feelings towards Loris. An idea popped into my head that given Renly's manipulative nature that you guys have done so such a great job highlighting, thank you, is it possible that Renly viewed him more as a sex partner without any, any deeper meaning? Or is it even possible that Renly actually used Loris in his scheming to get closer to the Tyrells and later used him as a meat, sh- <laughs> as a meat shield like Brienne when Loris joined the Rainbow Guard? Thoughts? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Uh, we chose this question for this episode, uh, Sergey, because you had messaged us on Twitter, uh, because we well, was saving this question for this episode because Loris features very prominently in, in this chapter. We wanted to kind of align this question there. So I figure, uh, what do you think, Emma? Do you think Steve should go first on this question? Sure, by all means. Guess first. Sure. So it's an interesting question. My thinking is, like, I think Renly is a deeply sort of cynical and manipulative politician, but the one thing where he seems pretty constant is his attachment to Loras. Hmm. That, like, not only are they always in cahoots and always sort of working for mutual gain, but, like, Renly is always keeping him by his side. You know, he's, uh, you know, betting on his behalf in the, in the tourneys. He makes him his, like, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. Mm-hmm. He gives him the command of the Vanguard. You know, he's, like, closer to him 
you know, at events than he is with Marjorie. And it just seems to me that, like, if Renly was treating this purely manipulatively, he'd be doing more of a kind of hard-to-get, like, you know, I'll give you a little something yeah. and then push you away and then you need to do more for me. And uh, that doesn't seem to be it. I think there's the old adage in, in history that, like, good people are not the same thing as effective people. <laughs> and... You know, I think Renly is one of those people where, like, he can be perfectly nice in his, like, personal life. Mm -hmm. It's the politics where, like, he feels no compunction to be, you know, upstanding. <laughs> so I think, you know, th that that's my take anyway. Yeah, I agree. You can be a generally bad person and still fall in love and have a serious connection with someone. I mean, Tywin, who we... Uh, ragged on at length last week and we'll do so again in this episode seems to have had an intense and genuine romantic relationship with Joanna to the extent that his brother says the what was good in Tywin was lost after she died so yeah I don't really see any contradiction between Renly as a cynical manipulative person but also having a sincere relationship with Loras and it might be hard to separate these impulses I mean Loras came to Renly as a squire from House Tyrell and Tyrell and Baratheons are two of the most prominent houses in the realm and that was healing a rift from Robert's Rebellion so uh, I think if genuine feelings did flower, they definitely flowered under the umbrella of the political benefit that Renly could glean from this and the Tyrells could glean from this. So they probably went hand in hand, I would say. If Renly, uh, yeah, I agree. If Renly was being cynical about Loras, you do have to consider that the the, the relationship they seem to have is, is, to use an old and outdated and terrible um, term, is the love that dare not speak its name, which is something that existed about homosexual relationships in the past. Um, which is what modern, modern culture had talked about, or mo not modern culture, but culture of 40, 50, 60 years had, had, in America had talked about. And in, in that light, Loris and Renly's relationship is one that has to kind of remain under the ground, kind of an open secret, because as we know from George's So Spake Martin archive, we know that most of the Tyrell family knew, or at least Aletta Tyrell knew that Loris Tyrell was homosexual. Um, but that's, that's okay. Because, you know, as long as it wasn't kind of done out in the open and in public, it wasn't that big of a deal for them. And I think that relationship between Loris and Renly works. Now, that's not to say that Renly is absolutely manipulative necessarily with Loris Terrell, but I think even if he is completely cynical about Loris, he does have to keep this guy alive and try and honor him in ways that are going to be beneficial to him and, and to the relationship. There is that one little detail that Laura says that he buried Renly in a secret place in Storm's End that no one knew about but them. And that is very romantic and sweet. So that does yeah. make me think, if nothing else, there was probably some some real love there. But, I mean, Martin did make the decision, unlike the show, to keep us out of Renly's tent. So we'll I don't think we'll ever really know for sure. Yeah, agreed there. So... Thank you, Sir Jay, for the question. We appreciate it. It's an interesting one. Definitely something we'll keep an eye on as we progress through the end of A Game of Thrones where Loras and Renly pop in. And especially in A Clash of Kings where we get Loras and Renly coming in even more of a, into, in, in, into even more of their own. Our next question comes from Lord Travis, our Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, who asks, Guys, I don't want to be pessimistic. Great way to start, Lord Travis. I appreciate that. <laughs> But there is a lot of material left in Fire and Blood. We still have almost 20 years of Aegon III's reign, 10 more Targaryen kings remaining, and 147 years until Robert's Rebellion and the fall of the Mad King. How dense will Fire and Blood Volume 2 be? Well, Jeff, talking about the, the shape and structure of the books to come is very much your wheelhouse. So what do you think? Yeah, so I, I was thinking about this, and I, I have to say I would not be completely shocked if Fire and Blood Volume 2 becomes Fire and Blood Volume 2 and then Fire and Blood Volume 3. Because we know now that George 
went way over the top of the amount of material he's supposed to write for the world book and for Fire and Blood Volume 1. You know, 200,000 words in the world of Ice and Fire for the Targaryen kings from Aegon I to Aegon Aegon III alone, and that he all wrote them before 2014. And then he wrote an additional 100,000 or so words just on Jaehaerys I and Alysanne Targaryen in 2017 and early 2018. So... In my opinion, I think at some point after The Winds of Winter is published in Shalah, George will do some sort of expansion on the full reign of Aegon III, and then he'll get crazy with Darren the First, then Baylor. But really, and I'm, I'm curious what Steve's thoughts are about this. If I had a candidate for who George might go kind of hog wild on, just like he did with Jaehaerys I and Aegon III, I think he's really going to go full Jaehaerys on the reign of Viserys II, who is a fascinating king and hand of the king as well. And who knows what happens after that? You know, at some point he's going to realize he's written 300,000 words probably, and he hasn't even gotten beyond the first Blackfire Rebellion. And we all know what happens, right? So I think we're going to see two volumes covering the reigns of, you know, the volume two covering perhaps the reigns of Aegon III to the end of the first Blackfire Rebellion, or maybe to the death of Darren the Second Targaryen that'll publish between The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring, and hopefully after a Duncan Egg or two novellas as well, because that'd be awesome. And then Fire and Blood Volume 3 covering the reigns of Maker the First to Eris the Second, which will pub- be published after Dream of Spring and hopefully after more Duncan Egg. All of this, of course, is inshallah. So those are my thoughts about what's going to happen with the future of Fire and Blood. Um, so one thing that sort of sprung to my mind in terms of like where we might see expansion is with Aegon the Fourth. Interesting. Because like he had that whole plan for doing like a series of like Flashman style novellas. Yeah. About Aegon the Fourth as like this utter bastard who sometimes who somehow gets away with all of it in the end. And I have to say, like on a personal level, I kind of wish there was like some more meat on the bones in Fire and Blood Volume One <laughs> because there were some things there was like I still want answers to George. Um, definitely like more on Septon Barth was desperately needed. Yeah, that was disappointing for sure. I agree, and especially what we got of him was so good that it's like that's true. There's some great quotes. But yeah, Jeff's right that when, when you start talking about Volume 2 and Volume 3, you get this uneasy intersection with Duncan Egg, not just because Martin wants to tell those stories in Duncan Egg, but because there's some serious secrets, especially regarding Summerhall, yes. that you think Martin wants to tell within the framework of Duncan Egg. So then, I mean, it was cute enough in World of Ice and Fire when he used ink blots to prevent us knowing from <laughs> Summerhall, but what if, if he gets to later Fire and Blood volumes, including the realm of the Reign of Egg and the Fifth, and he does some kind of trick like that with again. I think my patience for it will be much less. I'd rather hear that from Duncan Egg. But then he has to get Duncan Egg off the road again before he can publish Fire and Blood Volume Two or Three. So I'm going to be interested to see how he threads that if indeed he ever gets around to it. But uh, we've we've received his reassurances of late. His very optimistic reassurances that wins will come first and not uh, not too long either. So I mean I don't know. I, I've got a really good feeling that the wins winner is close to being done. I mean what I, what I think is going to end up happening probably is something like this, right? The wins winner will be published next year, maybe the year after, who knows. And then George is going to sit down, he'll start writing a dream of spring and he'll be like, "Oh, uh, you know, uh, let's. I should probably do some more history to kind of get some more background about some of the events that are going to happen during the spring. And he'll start working on the rest of the reign of Aegon the Third and Baylor and Viserys the Second, or all the Aegon the Fourth stuff. Especially if he's going to have the the coming conflict between Daenerys and Young Griff occupying a considerable portion of a dream spring. He's going to be like, well, I really need to kind of set that up historically so we know who the Blackfires are and so that you really, really know that this is an important conflict that is taking place in history that we need to kind of parallel with the – you you, you you just know how George's mind kind of works. So I would not be surprised if George kind of writes dream, Duncan Egg, and Fire and Blood Volume 2 at the same time. I don't think that's – 
outside of the realm of possibility, even though I think the smart decision really is to just like kind of press forward with the dream of spring and just be like, you know, just kind of get that one done. And then, and then like kind of go back and, and do the history portions of it. But I digress. I don't know. He does love putting things in context. And I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if we get more moments like the blood Raven reveal and dance, which is cool enough if you don't know anything about blood Raven or the black fire era, but was amazing if you did. Yeah. So I'm curious to see if we get anything like that in wins, but yeah, I agree. That does make sense that he would get inspired just because George likes chasing shiny objects, but also because <laughs> it may be that writing Fire and Blood helped with his writer's block on wins. That seems to be the impression he's giving. Yes. So maybe, maybe something like that will be in the pipeline for Dream. Exactly. <laughs> so thank you uh, for your question, Lord Travis. I'm certainly very curious to see if, if Martin does go full Peter Jackson The Hobbit and extend <laughs> Fire and Blood Volume 2 into Fire and Blood Volume 3. It's it's certainly not out of their own possibility, especially, as you say, the amount of words he ended up writing over the top for this one. True that. True that. But this episode is not about Fire and Blood. You'll have to wait a few weeks for that for our next a Fire and Blood episode, which we will uh, – we, we did talk about this in our special episode that's coming up, which we won't announce quite yet. But we are going to be doing Fire and Blood. We originally were going to do two parts for Fire and Blood. One of – the first part was going to cover the reigns of Aegon I and Jaehaerys I. And the second part was going to cover Viserys I to the regency of Aegon III. But really, there's no way we can do that a, a part two of – all of the kings, the conspiracies, the dance of the dragons, the war, all the players, and then get on to the Regency of Aegon the Third in just one single part. So we're happy, or depending on your perspective, sad to announce that we'll be doing two additional parts on Fire and Blood. The next part will be covering the dance of the dragons in a uh, a podcast one titled "The Dying of the Dragons," which is the title that Gildane gives to that. Ep- epoch in, in Targaryen history. And then in January, we'll be doing volume, we'll be doing part three of volume one, which is going to be covering the Regency period of Aegon III. So we're excited about doing that. Hope you guys are pleased as well. But if you're not, that's okay. We love you guys all the same. Yes, indeed. Uh, I look so forward to talking about the Dance of the Dragons <laughs> at length. I care so much about that conflict and all the sides and the people. Am I am I conveying my enthusiasm sufficiently? Oh man, talking I, about the Dance of the Dragons. It, it, this is this is not at all a period of history I was kind of done with after the novellas. It, it's going to be great to kind of like get you like to say whether you support the Blacks or the Greens in the end. I think it's I think it's going to be my have fun question. trying to get me to do that, Jeff. <laughs> I'm t- I'm telling you, I'm Team Red Common all the way when it comes to the Dance of the Dragons. Come wipe. Yeah, them no, I'm exactly. I'm I'm Team something falls out of the sky and crushes them both right. when it comes to that particular conflict. But yeah, so ch- check out. Our Patreon, if you're not already, patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can check out our our monthly special episodes on there, including our first one on Fire and Blood that we've released and the second two that are coming up later, as Jeff just said, and on many other topics, including Sir Barristan, Stannis, Volantis, all that good stuff, and many more to come. Absolutely. So... This episode is about one of my favorite chapters in Game of Thrones, which is, I always fucking say that, but it's about one of my favorite chapters in Game of Thrones, the Game of Thrones edit 11. And sad to say, but after this episode, we only have four Ned chapters left before he wargs into ice, then skin changes into a flock of pigeons and flies away to live on forever in our hearts. And this chapter, more than anything else, feels like a further step towards the Lord Hand's downfall. And on that happy note, let's begin with the synopsis. Ned Stark sits high atop the Iron Throne as the robe dances its way towards a war footing. But it's not a metaphorical Iron Throne. No, 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 no. The actual Iron Throne. The light slants through the windows of the throne room in stripes of red, while green, brown, and blue hunting tapestries hang where the Targaryen dragon skulls used to lay. But the only color Ned senses is present is red. Blood red, to be precise. And that is completely not at all ominous, of course. 
And how about the Iron Throne that Ned sits on? Is it comfortable? Cozy? Regal? <laughs> no. You see, the chair had been intentionally designed to be the that way by Aegon the First Targaryen himself. A king should never sit easy, Aegon had reportedly said when the chair was constructed. But Ned's not particularly thrilled with Aegon's grand design. It was, as Robert had warned, a hellishly uncomfortable chair, and never more so than now, with his shattered leg throbbing more sharply every minute. The metal beneath him had grown harder by the hour, and the fanged steel behind made it impossible to lean back. Ned curses Aegon for his arrogance, and then he curses Robert for going off to hunt with more than half the court while he's still sitting here on this iron throne. But it's not just the chair and Robert's absenteeism that's giving Ned a goddamn fit. There's this little matter of Gregor Clegane and Lannister men slaughtering civilians in the Riverlands. Varys, sitting below Ned at council table, asked kneeling villagers if they were quite certain that the men who attacked them were more than brigands. Sir Raymond Derry, one of the three knights who had dragged the villagers to the Red Keep, answers for them. Oh, they were brigands beyond a doubt. Lannister brigands. Well, now everyone is uncomfortable in the Red Keep, and Ned ain't surprised. Shit's gone real fucking bad since Catelyn Stark took Tyrion Lannister prisoner. The Westerlands and Riverlands have called their banners, and their armies are massing near the Pass of the Golden Tooth. And Ned is fairly confident that blood is going to be shed one way or the other, but how would he staunch the wound after blood starts flowing? But before that, though, we get another report. Sir Carol Vance gestures at the villagers and reports that these are the only survivors from the Holdfast of Sherr, where the people of the Wendish Town and the Mummers Ford tried to flee to after the savagery began. And Ned, because he's Ned and he's good, tells the villagers to get to their feet, thinking in very Northman terms that he doesn't trust what men say on bended knee. Sir Raymond Derry tells a man named Joss to tell Ned what had happened, and Joss reports that he was a bar owner until Lannister men came up into his alehouse, drank their fill, and then burned the bar to the ground. Another farmer rises, talking about how the brigands burned them out and had no interest in theft. They just wanted to watch the world burn. And they also wanted to murder. They murdered apprentice boys, mothers. And when the civilians fled to the Holdfast, the raiders burned the Holdfast down and shot arrows at the people trying to flee from it. And while they had left Cher's Holdfast essentially unmolested due to it being a stouter defensive location due to its stone walls, they were on their way to the Mummers Ford to inflict more horror on the, on the small folk. Once again, like last week, on behalf of Emmett and probably Steve, fuck you, Tywin. Fuck you. Ned feels the cold, sharp points of steel between his fingers as he carefully leans in. Some of the blades were still sharp, even after hundreds of years. And what Ned, and what Ned was doing here, he would never comprehend. But he was there, and he had justice to attend to. What proof do you have that these were Lannisters, he said, he asked, trying not to sound angry. Well, they didn't wear crimson cloaks or fly lion bannisters, Sir Mark Pipley says hotly. They weren't that stupid. They were all mounted or armored up, though, Sir Carol states, and they had war horses. Perhaps they stole the horses from the last place they raided, Littlefinger says, faking stupidity. When Ned asks how many, how many men there were, he gets conflicting answers. Fifty, a hundred, hundreds. Ned asks if they wore any ornamentation, anything that would give them away. No, they were armored pretty plainly, but there was one dude in the party who anyone would recognize. He was huge, big as an ox, with a voice like stone breaking. The mountain, Sir Mark says, Gregor Clegane. Mutterings and whispers echo off the walls. Gregor Clegane was bannerman to Tywin Lannister. If Mark was right, and he is, then this was Tywin's work. And things were much worse than Ned had previously thought. Ned realizes why the peasants seemed so reticent to speak. The knights had probably dragged them here to name Tywin Lannister, the king's father-in-law, a murderer. Ned wonders if the peasants had any choice in the matter before Mark, Raymond, and Carol took them to King's Landing. Probably not. Grand Maester Pycelle gets up and does his toady work on behalf of Tywin, saying that they can't really know if it was Gregor. 
Everyone treats this protest as the idiocy, idiocy that it is. Pycelle tries a new tact. Why should Sir Gregor turn brigand? By the grace of his liege lord, he holds a stout keep in lands of his own. The man is an anointed knight. And besides, Tywin is the father of our gracious queen. God, Pycelle, you so silly. Well, that goes over as well as replacing a church pulpit with a stripper pole. Sir Mark is outraged and Ned is all cold and Ned-like. But even if Pycelle's an idiot, Ned does notice men slipping out of the door. He thinks they're going to ground or rats heading off to, quote, nibble the queen's cheese. And I really like that kind of touch on George's part. It's really good writing. And then George sees Septimordain and Sansa up on the balcony and feels angry. However, he knows that Septimordain only brought Sansa here to listen to the usual four petitions, uh, petitions, disputes, and boundary placement. But Ned's thoughts on Sansa are interrupted when Littlefinger has a question for the men. These holdfasts were under your protection. Where were you when all the slaughtering and burning was going on? Well, they were below the golden tooth at Sir Edmure Tully's order. When they got word of the butchery back home, Edmure gave the men leave to find the survivors and bring them to Robert. But by the time they got down to the villages, Gregor Clegane was gone. But if they come again, they're going to water the ground with their blood, Sir Mark declares. Okay, sure. But then Carol brings up that Edmure has dispatched men to all the villages in Holdfast within a day's ride of the border between the Riverlands and the Westerlands. You can see the military mind of Ned Stark rolling its goddamn eyes as he thinks, and that may be precisely what Lord Tywin wants, to bleed off the strength from Riverrun, goad the boy into scattering his swords. Edmure was young and gallant, but not especially wise. He'd defend every Riverlander and every inch of Tully soil, and Tywin would exploit that. So what exactly do you want us to do, Littlefinger asked the River Knights. Well, they're here to keep the king's peace. They want justice for Sherer and the Wendishtown and the Mummers Ford. They want to pay Gregor Clegane back for what he did. Unfortunately for them, Lord Hostertully had told them to get the king's leave before they struck back. Thank the gods for old Lord Hoster then, Ned thinks. You see, Hoster had been smart enough to see that Tywin hoped to provoke the Tullys into attacking without the king's leave. And if they attacked, Cersei and Tywin would have a plausible case that it was the Tullys, not the Lannisters who were the aggressors. And who the fuck knew what Robert would think about all that? So Pycelle the Pubis at tries one more toady action. My lord hand, if these good folk believe that Sir Gregor has forsaken his holy vow for plunder and rape, let them go to his liege lord and make their complaint. These crimes are no concern of the throne. Let them seek Lord Tywin's justice. Ned rejects this. No matter the region of Westeros, it's all the king's justice, and they aren't going to defer to Robert when he gets back. They need to act now. Ned sees Sir Robert Royce and calls him out, ordering that he ride off to inform Robert of what he was done and said, but the River Knights ask if they have their leave to take their vengeance, and God bless Ned because he's having none of that. Vengeance? I thought we were speaking of justice. Burning Clegane's fields and slaughtering his people will not restore the king's peace. Only your injured pride. Ned turns to the small folk. People of Sherer, I cannot give you back your homes or your crops, nor can I restore your dead to life. But perhaps I can give you some small measure of justice in the name of our king, Robert. All eyes are on Ned. His leg shrieks with pain, but he tries to ignore it. He gives his northern expression of what justice actually means. The first men believed that the judge who called for death should wield the sword, and in the north we hold to that still. But Ned can't do anything about Gregor Clegane in his current broken state. He needs someone else. Loras Tyrell calls across calls from calls to Ned from across the Red Keep that he would love to have the honor of bringing justice to Clegane. Littlefinger chuckles and says that Gregor will kill him, but Loras isn't afraid of Gregor. Ned ignores Loras for reasons he'll explain in ones we are definitely going to be talking about here, and looks for others. Lord Barak, Thoris Amir, Sir Gladen, Lord Lothar, 
Each of you is to assemble 20 men to bring my word to Gregor's keep. To Gregor's keep. 20 of my own guards shall go with you. Lord Barak Dondarrion, you shall have the command as befits your rank. And then Ned denounces Gregor, Gregor Kilgain in the Red Keep and sentences him to death. Triumphant music plays. Everyone cheers, right? 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 No. No, of course not. It's quiet until Loris asks what of him. Well, Ned doesn't doubt Loris's courage, but Ned's about justice, not the vengeance that Loris seems to be after. And with that, Ned dismisses the men to their tasks and dismounts the Iron Throne, feeling Loris's sullen stare as he climbs down. Below, Littlefinger and Pycelle are already gone, Pycelle likely off to rat on Ned to Cersei, and Littlefinger having also seen Sansa is off to be Lord Creepyfinger to Sansa, which is something we're going to be talking about next week, but Varys is still there to give Ned a piece of his mind. Had it been up to me, I should have sent Sir Loras. He so wanted to go, and a man who has the Lannisters for his enemies would do well to make the Tyrells his friends. Ned retorts that Loras is young and will outgrow his disappointment, but what about Sir Ellen Payne, Varys presses, as King's Justice, maybe he should have gone. Maybe you insulted him by not sending him. No, 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 Ned, there's no insult intended, Ned assures Varys. But Illyn is a Westerman and his family is sworn to Tywin. Ned's not going to send a dude that may owe Tywin fealty after another dude who owes Tywin Lannister fealty. Fair enough, Varys says, but still Illyn wasn't pleased. I hope Sir Illyn outgrows his disappointment as well. He does so love his work, Varys says, closing Edder 11 out in a not at all ominous note. Now, look, I know that Edder 10 is a fan favorite, and I get why it's a masterful rendition of the romantic chivalric tropes that we so love in the series. But even if Edder 10 is the objective better chapter, it's only a hair better than all of Ned's final chapters. And really, Edder 11 is the plot picking up to a run pace. And man, they got politics in it. It's so good, right, Emmett? I got to admit, <laughs> Edward 11 is kind of the odd one out for me among Ned's later chapters. I've said before, I'm more interested in the personal, emotional qualities of his story. You can have your hard politics and military work, Jeff. I'm in the corner with my cure poster searching Liana on DeviantArt. And for me, the politics of being Hand of the King really get interesting when Tyrion takes over the job in A Clash of Kings. And those are some of my favorite chapters. And the, the politics get really dense. And I really enjoy them. But... Edward 11 feels kind of like a breather before the fall really falls out from underneath Ned in his next chapter. But that being said, I'd be churlish not to be excited about finally being introduced to the Iron Throne itself, <laughs> as we are in this chapter. And this chapter does have some really interesting political gamesmanship going on, as Stephen has written about before. Yeah, so as I wrote about, uh, God, now five years wow. ago, uh, this chapter is like my hands-down favorite in the book really? for politics. There, I think there's others that have a better... You know, writing style or, you know, more deep characterization. But this is really, you know, the one time where we actually see Ned doing something genuinely political as Hand of the King. And, you know, as, like, was my mission in, in writing my first book, this is exhibit A for my case as to why Ned Stark should not be dismissed as an idiot who was always going to lose the Game of Thrones because he's actually making the smart move here. Um, And it's something that's usually misinterpreted. Uh, Also, as a historian, I'm particularly interested in, because as I was saying uh, before we started recording, this is actually kind of the closest that the War of Five Kings gets to the actual Wars of the Roses, especially the sort of early phase where uh, Richard, Duke of York, who is the sort of historical parallel for Ned, um, is the Lord Protector of the Kingdom, and he's sort of going around trying to bring an end to various feuds that are becoming proxy wars for the fight between the Yorks and the Lancasters, Hmm. 
and arresting people. And then, you know, he gets back to London. Henry VI wakes up from his nervous breakdown, (laughs) dismisses him, frees everyone from prison, and the cycle just starts up again. Yeah, that's really interesting to consider. It's coming off the the Tower of Joy chapter, which is kind of the most fantasy-oriented and most kind of abstract of Ned's chapters, other than maybe his last chapter in the Black Cells. But yeah, this is where it really gets down to the hard business of Hand of the King. And I think it's interesting that Ned really only gets down to this business when Robert isn't there and because Robert isn't there. It's specifically when, when the king is no longer around that... Ned forced to step in actually does the the best work he does because I agree it's 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 really interesting what Ned does in this chapter it's bold in a way he isn't really elsewhere in the book and it displays an understanding of what Tywin is trying to accomplish that in a lot of ways I think undercuts Tywin's reputation or self-conception and really sets the groundwork for how Rob is going to do the same because Rob outsmarts Tywin in several key ways uh, when we get to later on in this book and his military strategy in the Riverlands. I think you had brought up this point and when I mean, we were talking about Eddard uh, 10, maybe it's you or, or Chloe, in which that the opening of Eddard 10 is bursting with colors, right? You've got all the different colors that Ned is, is seeing in his fever dream. But here, I mean, the, the, the title of this episode, we entitled Fifty Shades of, of Grey, is that what you could title it? Something like that. Uh, 50, Shades, 50 of Shades of Truth. There we go. God, I forget my own fucking titles. But no, but here we have that line from from Ned, which I think is a really good one, which is a clear contrast to Editor 10, which is full of colors, which is... Uh, Steve, you're, you're pointing out this line in, in pre-production. What was the line again? Yeah, so the line is, he's talking about his clothes, and he says, uh, uh, black and white and gray, all the colors of truth, which is like... For someone who's supposed to be very binary and, you know, honor, <laughs> like, that's a very kind of unusually perceptive and subtle thought from Ned Stark. No, agreed. That's a great point. And the, there's a, there is a strong note of color analysis going on in this chapter, even as it starts. We have the opening paragraph, Through the high, narrow windows of the Red Keep's cavernous throne room, the light of sunset spilled across the floor, laying dark red stripes upon the walls where the heads of dragons had once hung. <laughs> Now the stone was covered with hunting tapestries, vivid with greens and browns and blues. And yet still it seemed to Ned Stark that the only color in the hall was the red of blood. Of course. So this is a recurring motif in the first book, the association of the Red Keep with blood. At the end of Eddard 9, quote, He remembered seeing the Red Keep looming ahead of him in the first gray light of dawn. The rain had darkened the pale pink stone of the massive walls to the color of blood. And then Arya had those intense nightmares in her third chapter about... She would find herself wandering down gloomy halls, past faded tapestries, descending endless circular stairs, darting through courtyards or over bridges, her shouts echoing unanswered. In some of the rooms, the red stone walls would seem to drip blood, and nowhere could she find a window. And that's a perfect setup for this chapter, because what the meat of this chapter is about is a discussion of bloodshed and how the Iron Throne should respond. The keep and the throne are soaked in blood here because the kingdom is increasingly soaked in blood, as we get this report from the peasants of the Riverlands. And you have that note about... Robert's colorful hunting tapestries, which of course come up later, and how they're failing to paper over this grim reality that they're trying to cover up the blood, but they can't quite. And that gets into a lot of the themes we've been talking about in this first book about the belief in kind of songs and the romantic Hmm. ideal expressed by tapestries like that and how it's those are kind of falling apart and the scales are falling from people's eyes. And it gets across something I really like in this chapter about how the people who won Robert's Rebellion still kind of have this uneasy feeling that this is all Targaryen turf and they're just renting it. Hmm. That the, the the dragons are still kind of behind the walls in the storerooms. Like Jamie has that line about he sees like the Targaryen symbol on the floor and hears Rhaegar talking to him about how he doesn't belong there. 
Like, they won. They have the city. The Targaryens are in exile, but Ned and Robert in this whole generation still feel at some level like, mm, this is not our city. This is not our place. This is this is still dragon territory. Yeah. I mean, if, if, you, if you take it to, I mean, you talked about the Red Keep being soaked in blood. I mean, how is the Red Keep even even founded? I mean, it's essentially, I mean, exactly. read Fire and Blood Volume 1 and read The Reign of Maker the Cruel. I mean, what he did after he, after the stonemasons had carved the Red Keep and had done all the tunnels for him is that he massacred all of them. So we have an entire palace that is founded in blood, that continues in blood. And then we see it here in Ned's chapter where he's dealing with the more of the thematic idea of the bloodshed that's going on in the realm and how, how the Iron Throne is supposed to respond. But I think it's a fantastic point you make is that Ned feels like a stranger here. I have to imagine Robert feels the same way as well. I mean, Robert makes a, n- a number of allusions to how damnably uncomfortable the Iron Throne is. And I'm not saying that it's, it's not physically uncomfortable, but it's there has to be some sort of emotional kind of discomfort that Robert feels at sitting this throne that was held by the Targaryens for almost 300 years before, you know, b- before Robert won his rebellion and how that kind of feels off. And, you know, uh, Ned here is also sitting on the Iron Throne. I mean, the, he has several lines where he feels like the, the swords like coming through his fingers and stuff like that. And this is a very uncomfortable feeling physically for Ned, but it's also one that kind of resonates emotionally for him. That that discomfort that he feels is resonating throughout this chapter that he doesn't has no idea why he's here and why he's been selected for this purpose. But he's going to try and do something right by the people all the same. Well, it's just like Davos when he becomes Hand. And there's that great little line where Stannis says, for this, I mean, to make you a lord. And Davos just thinks this. And he's just doesn't understand what he's done for Stannis and why he's been given this honor. But by the end of the book, he's figured out what he is trying to do and what he can accomplish in that that role and what he can do for Stannis. So I think there is that, that connection in common where it's just when Ned and Davos feel like they don't understand their job, that ironically they do the best in their job, which is always a nice romantic thing on Martin's part, of course. And uh, But yeah, I love the... there's This this whole passage reminds me of Barristan's rhyme about Astapor, that bricks and blood built that city yeah. and bricks and blood her people. The Red Keep has that same kind of feeling sometimes where it just feels like haunted and just overwhelmed with all the kind of horror and sorrow that went into it. Which makes it a wonderful setting. I mean, I love that's something I love about the series is those those intense kind of horror moments that pop in and out. Uh, but I love that as just kind of framing this chapter before we get to the politics. That that's kind of how Ned feels about this whole room and everything that goes into it. But as we've been saying, that makes it all the more powerful when he tries to stand up and do some justice within that. I, I was going to say when you brought up, you know, this is a room of horrors. I'm like, hmm, it's almost like it's a thin place. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like you know. Almost about to become a thin place. It's like, oh my god, there's been so much murder. Oh my god, <laughs> just so much. It's true. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of people, and you know that you know blood will out. It's gonna have its its toll on the people sitting the the, the throne, which is why, like Ned talks about, you know, like people have been killed by this yep. chair. It's not just a symbol of power; it is itself. An instrument of death. Yeah, of violence. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the, what's the interesting thing about the Iron Throne, because on one hand, it's this huge, gigantic, grotesque, just imposing edifice. The way Ned describes the throne is actually very similar to how Catelyn describes the Red Keep when she first sees it. Ned describes it as this ironwork monstrosity of spikes and jagged <laughs> edges, and Catelyn describes the Keep as this immense grim barbican with seven huge drum towers crowned with iron ramparts, and they're both 
monsters that are looming above the city and looming above mortal men. And I think you really see this kind of brought to the fore in The Forsaken, because I'll take any excuse to bring that up, <laughs> when Euron frames the Iron Throne in Dampere's vision as this kind of ladder to an abattoir of the gods, that the Iron Throne is how you rise, not just in political power, but like magical, metaphysical power, and can make yourself a god, basically. So the Iron Throne is a statement of power. Here are the swords of those who defied us. You know, Do you wish to join them? Look what happened to them. Yeah, the Targaryen kings are, and I'm not the first to make this comparison, are kind of metaphorical dragons sitting atop their hoard of gold when they mm-hmm. sit atop the Iron Throne. This is all their treasure that they've collected, and now they're just kind of basking upon it. But on the other hand, there is this element of parody to the Iron Throne where it's it's so grotesque and so ugly, like it's not symmetrical. Yeah. The way people describe it doesn't seem like your eye is drawn to any point of it. It's not like a Baroque, refined, elegant expression of craftsmanship. It's just this huge, stinking, ugly piece of metal just sitting in the room. And like Stephen said, it like it's people have died on the throne. The rumors are people were killed by the throne. Yep. It it's, it's 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 a statement of power, but it's also a target on your back, which gets to how Martin thinks about kingship in general. And I was like, in terms of Fire and Blood, Volume One, reading that, there's the one art of Viserys the First, who of course was the one of the most jolly and friendly and happy of Targaryen kings, and he's just sitting there on the throne, like laughing at something, wine goblin in his hand. But all around him in the picture are just swords, just jagged swords. Some of them like looking like they're poking <laughs> at him. And as much as the Iron Throne rises you high, it's also you have that much farther to fall. And that happened to the Targaryens, as, as of course, we know from Robert's Rebellion. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was thinking about something. I wanted to go back to something we were talking about, about how the, the tapestries have replaced the dragon skulls that, that previously occupied yeah. it. And I think and it, it struck me as you were reciting the dream from Arya Three that the Targaryens mm. are right underneath of what's going on with Robert and Ned's discomfort at being at sitting the Iron Throne. The Targaryens are right there. The Dragon Skulls weren't destroyed. They're down in the dungeons just waiting to emerge, so to speak. And I feel like that's a potential metaphor foreshadowing for what's going to happen when the Targaryens come back and unseat the quote unquote heir of, of Robert Baratheon in the, if, in the event that, that Tommen is somehow still in power, which he won't be, or the, or Aegon himself, young Griff unseating, unseating Tommen at some point in the Winds of Winter. So yeah, I, I think there's, there's all sorts of fantastic imagery at work that Martin is playing with in this chapter with the Iron Throne, with the tapestries replacing the dragon skulls, but those dragon skulls are underneath just waiting to emerge and ready to take back their power and throne. Which is especially interesting, of course, if Aegon the Sixth is not actually a Targaryen, <laughs> because then that just adds a whole other layer of like, yeah, it's just another Aegon on the Iron Throne, but it's just the image of him, right. just the rumor, just everything attached to him. It's none of the actual substance, and that kind of gets at what happened to the throne. It just became this symbol of power you reach for and not something you actually try to do anything with, like Ned Stark, who actually tries to do some justice with it in this particular chapter. So with the kind of the tonal thematic nature of the Iron Throne and the Throne Room established, we turn to the meat of the chapter, as I said, the blood the Lannisters are spilling in the Riverlands and how the throne should respond. Ned describes the West as having been a tinderbox since Catelyn has seized Tyrion Lannister. We know from Catelyn 7 and other chapters that have discussed this that River Run and Casterly Rock have both called their banners. And now we've kind of spilled over into open fighting. Not an open war. This isn't actually the beginning of the War of Five Kings. So far, it's a raid of the Riverlands by the Westerlands in response to Cat snatching Tyrion. Uh, as I sort of talk about in in the article that I wrote, there is the series of private feuds uh, between major English noble houses, the Percys and the Nevilles, <laughs> who are in the north of England, and the Bonvilles and the Courtenays in Cornwall and Devon. And the 
Yorks and the Beauforts in Wales, right? You know, none of these people get along. And what's really interesting in the way that it, it, it plays out is, on the one hand, you get this thing of almost accidental escalation, hmm. where, like, you know, one side is, like, going to raid another side. Percy's attacked the Nevilles at, like, a wedding party. The Nevilles are going to retaliate. And it's like, they just don't expect, the you know, cert- someone to be there in one place with a certain amount of troops and all of a sudden people are dead and they're like oh shit we didn't expect this uh and then finally when the like the actual war starts the battle of uh first battle of st albans like everyone is shocked that it actually came to this because there's been all of these sort of like brinksmanship competitions where the two sides will muster these armies and get up to the very point of killing each other and back down (laughs) and now it's like the first time in which they they don't pull back in time and there's dead people on the field. There's lords dead on the field. And now what was just a sort of purely political conflict is now a national blood. Yeah. Feud. You know, you, you pick right. York or Lancaster, not just because like, well, you know, I think York is right about our foreign policy vis-a-vis France <laughs> or, you know, I, I don't like the taxation under the Lancastrians, but like you killed my uncle oh. and I'm going to murder your children. It's that kind of escalation where you can't really pull back from, right? It's it's war without uh, without bumper rails. This sort of uh, chevauchee in the Riverlands is like a perfect example where no one really expects it to get this far. Like, Tywin is trying to, like, play this clever scheme with Ned. Hoster is responding with a political move. Ned kind of works out his own political slash military move. And, like, it's all gonna come crashing together and before they know it like a war is going to start yeah it's, it's it's interesting because i think the point you're, you're making is is that and maybe this is a point that i i had glossed over my own read of this chapter is that it's if you read tywin lash's motivations very closely he's not looking to actually start this massive war of the five kings at at, at this juncture of the story he wants to get Tyrion Lannister back to restore Lannister pride and Lannister honor. And he figures that the best way to do that is to lure Ned into the Riverlands, take him captive, and then trade Ned for Tyrion. And then they can kind of go back to doing their thing prior to the war starting. Now, the thing about that, though, is that Tywin is making moves that are going to incur a response from the Riverlands. If they're burning towns, killing civilians, burning crops, um, killing cattle, uh, doing all, committing all these rapes and different things like that, you're going to incur a response. So it seems to me that Tywin, as much as people think that he's this great pragmatist and fantastic strategist, is kind of going way over the top here to get Ned to come north from King's Landing. But he's going way over the top in such a way that is going to actually start the war, a war that he might not necessarily want at this juncture in the story. Right. He wants a fait accompli. He knows that, like, if he presents Robert with, like, a resolution, then Robert will, like, go along with it. But, like, and and this is where we get into, like, the reputations of Ned and Tywin in the fandom. Like, it's Ned who wins this round because... His whole scheme with sending out these 120 men with the king's banner, you know, this is where, like, Ned is an honorable man. Like, he wants to arrest Gregor, but he knows damn well that, like, there's a chance they're going to get attacked by Tywin. 
And that's what he wants. He wants Tywin having committed an act of violence against the king and therefore can be put under formal attainder himself. It's why he phrases his condemnation of Sir Gregor to not just include Sir Gregor, but um, all those who shared in his crimes. Hmm. Like, he is setting out, like, a clause for going after Tywin Lannister, and Tywin jumps completely into it. Hmm. Uh, And, you know, if, and this is where we get to sort of, you know, Martin's thumb on the scales, you know, if Robert lives a week... (laughs) Yep. The War of Five Kings starts with Tywin as an attainted traitor. <laughs> you know, that changes things enormously. And this is where, like, I sometimes get very much annoyed at the kind of crude Machiavellianism of the show and certain elements of the fandom who don't think that legitimacy matters. Yes. Yeah. Because if you look at the, the Wars of the Roses, right, it really mattered when Richard Duke of York was Lord Protector And when he wasn't, because when he was Lord Protector, he was the one saying, okay, the Percy's are are rebels, the Beauforts are rebels, I'm going to raise an army and go after them and lock them up. Um, By contrast, when he's out of power, then all of a sudden he's the rebel and the (laughs) traitor and he has to flee the, you know, flee to, to Europe and then come back and like invade via Ireland. And there's many moments in the, like, early stages of the Wars of the Roses where, like, Richard Duke of York will be in a better military position than the Lancastrians, but Henry VI shows up in armor, like, completely unexpectedly, and York's men won't fight him. Like, they're willing to, you know, kill the Beauforts or kill the Percys or even fight the Queen, but they won't go after the King's person because... The king's person is sacred, and they've all sworn oaths. And it's why, like, when Duke of York gets to, like, his highest position that he ever gets in the Wars of the Roses, like, he marches on London, he takes it, he puts his hand on the throne and says, like, I claim this by right. And everyone is dead silent. <laughs> no one goes along with it. And it's like, if if legitimacy doesn't matter, if it's all pure power politics, that wouldn't have happened. They would have just been yep. like, well, he's the guy with the army right now. We're going to back him. And it would be, you know, King Richard III, much like in Blackadder. Legitimacy really matters. You know, people don't like to think of themselves as the bad guys. Yeah. Um, so everyone has to sort of invent a narrative by which they're the good guys. And whoever can tell the better narrative wins. You know, Varys knew that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that crude Machiavellianism you're talking about tends to reduce everything to military power and see any other version of power as just papering over military power. But as you say, what what's happening in this chapter is less military responses and more legal and political maneuvering on Tywin's part and on Ned's part. Tywin is trying to create a specific political outcome that, as you say, he can present to Robert. And Ned is trying to do the same thing. At this point, it's it hasn't reached that escalation point. Ned is trying to prevent it. He's I think it's interesting in this chapter, he's not coming in on the side of the River Lords and, and thinking of them as his, his strong allies in the fight against Tywin. He's saying, okay, you, you guys are making each other bleed. How do I staunch this wound? Because the River Lords themselves, and this is the way the conflict will be framed in later books as well, they're certainly more sympathetic than Tywin's Wrecking Crew, <laughs> but they're still presented in this chapter as hot-headed elitists who don't really actually care about their people and yes. love themselves. I mean, the, the atrocities as described here are genuinely awful, and they're designed to stop the heart and angry up the blood in terms of us reading them for the first time. The people being burned alive at Wendish Town, the 
the Smith who talks about his apprentice boy being ridden down by men who are treating it as a game. I'm sure, I imagine Ned might have been thinking about Gendry at that moment. Yeah. Of the girl on and her Micah. knees. And Micah, absolutely. The girl who says, they killed my mother too, your grace, and they, and they, and she can't finish, and you can just leave up to your imagination what happened after that. I mean, it's it's designed to make you angry. And when I say designed, I mean not only by Martin, but also by Tywin. That it's this is terror he's using strategically to destroy his enemy's resources, overburden them with refugees, and force them to come face him, as he'll try to expand upon in The Clash of Kings. And again, we did the Taisha backstory last week, so you can see Martin really laying down the groundwork to make you hate <laughs> Tywin Lannister before he ever shows up on the text. On the other hand, though, as Ned notes, he doubts the villagers were given a choice in coming to court by the young riverlords. The young riverlords are just treating these peasants not as people they're sworn to protect, but as pawns, like Jorah was talking about in Danny 3. Well, they're not even pawns. They're the squares on the board. They have no yeah, age. They, they that's can't true. Move. They're just... Soldiers. They're are, yeah, in, that's a good point. Yeah, and what's... You know, I think Ned, like, points out quite rightly, like, what the riverlords want permission to do is to go do this to the Westerlands. Yep. And it's like, it's not the Westerlands' fault. Like, they didn't, you know, besides the, like, people fighting with Gregor, and, you know, those are a special band of psychopaths. <laughs> exactly. You know, your ordinary, you know, miner, or your ordinary, you know, cattle herder in the hills of the Westerlands had no knowledge that this was happening. And, like, if the river lords went and like murdered all of them and stole all their cattle, like Rob is going to do you know, <laughs> in a couple of books from now, it's like that kind of is why you get the like, Hmm, who's in the right, who's in the wrong. Um, which is especially a funny question because this chapter is the origin story of an entirely different point of view about the war of the five Kings, the brotherhood without yes. banners. Like Absolutely. this is the moment that like the arisen barrack is going to like, point to to say like okay what is our legitimacy what is our source of authority for conducting you know a, a revolutionary guerrilla war <laughs> you know it's okay it's you know we we've got this mandate from a king who no longer exists but it doesn't matter because like he's the only true king <laughs> so we can do whatever we want in his name well, it's a question of legitimacy, like you were talking about. I mean, Beric yeah. wouldn't have been able to keep his men together and grow his army if he was just talking about pure power politics against the Lannisters. He's, he has this ideology and this narrative that is really powerful, and it's rooted here. And it's you can see Ned kind of reacting in that same kind of distaste for the entire class when he wonders. There's one peasant who, who starts calling him your grace and has to tell him, no, I'm the hand. Robert is hunting, and he wonders to himself, how could a man live so close to the Red Keep and still not know who the king is? Yeah. That's, that's such a critique of this detached class that doesn't, as you were saying, it's just kind of thinking of the peasants as just ways to work out their frustration with what's happened and not actually in terms of the responsibility for who's carrying out these atrocities, which belongs with Tywin and Gregor. And you can see that also with Ty, uh, Ned saying that telling the peasants to rise because, quote, he never trusted what a man told him from his knees. That's that's Ned's kind of more personal model, personal connective model of justice that he's trying to use here as best he can, even though, of course, he can't write out and do it himself as he'd prefer to, which would have gotten him in trouble in this case. Yeah, it would have gotten him in trouble, but I think it, it does speak to his character. The, the character that's been built up in the past 42 chapters of A Game of Thrones, the guy who sups with his his men, who invites people over, who deals out justice personally to Jorah Mormont. Like, that's the character that Ned Stark is. He's not the guy that likes to send people to do his own bidding, but unfortunately he is physically unable 
able to carry out the king's justice in the, here. That Ned, more than anyone else in this room in the Red Keep, feels like the only honest person here who's trying to do the right thing by the realm and by the peasants who are bringing their grievance to the Red Keep and to the king. It's very much a follow-up on the council sessions we've seen in previous Ned chapters where he's the only honest man in the room. Pycelle is... I love how that Pycelle doesn't even try to hide what he's doing <laughs> in this chapter. He's just the most transparent Lannister stooge, and no one is fooled by it. Like, insisting that Tywin, of all people, be the one to settle the matter is just... He, he, I mean, there's there's many oath breakers in the story, but it's difficult to think of anyone who's comprehensively broken as many oaths <laughs> as Grandmaster yeah. Pycelle, just over and over. This guy, and, I, and I, I love I love Ned snarking on him, where he's like, "Oh yeah, I'd almost forgotten that Tywin was the was the king's father-in-law. Thank you for reminding me." Subtitle: You ass. <laughs> exactly. It's great. And then you have Varus just kind of fluttering in the background, murmuring about the horrors of men with his hand on his chest, the crocodile tear glimmering in his eye. Just just classic spider stuff, really. I don't know, man. Like, sometimes I I feel like when I read Varus now, and, and after especially reading Arya 3 and get, mm. kind of doing that in-depth read, I, I do kind of wonder where Varus is at this point. Like, is he still trying to angle to forestall, to forestall war? Or is he kind of just kind of paddling along at this point? I mean, I feel like Varus is, I mean, now that we have a dance with dragons, we can go back and see that Varus is attempting to forestall war in order to present the ideal conditions for Aegon Targaryen to invade whatever method that was actually going to kind of ensue is something that's, of course, up for debate still, even by the end of a dance with dragons. But you kind of wonder, is, is Varus here kind of being like, oh, both sides sort of thing, the horrors of war, we should just kind of resolve this now so that we can, you know, Fight this out a little bit later on when I actually have the uh, the timing correct for for the invasion by Aegon Targaryens. It's something that that I kind of ponder about uh, because I honestly don't know where Varys is, like where his mindset is at. Is he now at this point where he's like, well, fuck it, everybody's going to war now. I might as well just play my part and try to keep my head above water and do my best to set the conditions correctly for the invasion of Aegon and the Golden Company? Or is he still trying to keep with the policy that he and Illyrio decided upon in Arya 3, which is to kind of keep war from occurring until they have the right conditions for it? Well, that's where timing gets really interesting. Mm -hmm. Because, right, he's just kicked off his own plan to, like, engineer Drogo's entry into the war. Yes. By, like, setting up his quote-unquote assassination <laughs> attempt on Daenerys. But, like... It hasn't happened yet, so he's in a little bit of, like, a nebulous position. He's waiting to see whether, like, his thing is going to work. Uh, and it's why, the like, the thing that he says to Ned about Loras, like, I kind of wonder, like, is he trying to very subtly kind of, like, help out Ned a little bit? You know, his two things, right, yes, he doesn't want the war to happen yet, if he can help it, but he also doesn't want the war to be too decisive. Right. Yeah. Right. He wants everyone worn down. So, you know, if he's worried that, like, hmm, Ned might get, like, steamrolled by the Lannisters, and I don't want that happening. So, like, if I can maybe work out something where, like, the Tyrells become, you know, committed on, on Ned's side, maybe that'll keep the fighting going long enough for me to get my stuff ready. Hmm. It's interesting, because Varys also has, as we'll get into in A Clash of Kings, the overriding imperative to keep Stannis off the throne at all mm -hmm. costs. Yeah. At, at this point, he doesn't know about Stannis' involvement with magic, but just because Stannis is kind of an intense military commander, I don't think Varys wouldn't want him to be in charge when uh, Egan and the Golden Company show up. And he's got to know if Ned is researching the parentage of 
well, he doesn't know he's researching the parentage of, of Joffrey, Tom, and Marcel at this point, but he's following that path, that he's probably going to end up backing Stannis in that situation. So maybe he is trying to preempt that by making the Tyrells Ned's ally rather than Stannis. But yeah, I mean, part of st- stuff like with Varys and, and scenes like this, he just feels like he's talking to himself and nobody else. <laughs> and he's, he's just kind of enjoying the fact that no one realizes what he's doing. Right, and he's, he's house of cardsing it. He's like exactly turning to the fourth wall and being like... I always knew that Lord Stark would overplay his hand. <laughs> exactly. Pretty much. And there's also, like, for all that Varus has a lot of resources on his hands, very cunning, he has, he, he's kind of limited in terms of hard power, so there's not that much he can do, really, about intervening when military orders start being given. He can whisper in your ear before you make a particular decision. He can send out his spies to get information, but he doesn't, unlike Littlefinger, who can you know, take charge of the gold cloaks via his payment of them. Varus doesn't have an army he can raise in any capacity in Westeros at this point. So he, he might have, he might have his hands tied when it comes to stopping anything like this from occurring. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I mean, I just think that Varus is such an interesting player and, and kind of untangling some of his, his webs that he's, he's weaving here. It's something to kind of keep in mind as we're going kind of hurling towards the end of a game of Thrones, just because his role becomes so, Interesting to me. I mean, I really like Steve's point about having the Tyrells allied with Ned, with Ned Stark and trying to forestall Stannis from coming onto the Iron Throne. Because, I mean, Varys does note to Illyrio that Ned has the book. He has the bastards and soon enough he'll have right. the truth from, from Arya 3. So it does feel like that. To me, it, it sort of feels like that Varys is aware that war is going to start one way or the other. And, you know, as much as you can, as George might be retconning it here, when you look at Fire and Blood and you see the Dance of the Dragons and how all the different regions rallied around the different claimants to the Iron Throne and how they were all incredibly exhausted by the war, maybe that's what Varys is going for here, a kind of situation where you have the Riverlands fighting against the Westerlands, who's fighting against the Tyrells, who's fighting against the North, who's fighting against the Crownlands, and then Dorne's just kind of separated out because Varus is trying to preserve Dorne for Aegon himself. That's a good point for sure. But regardless of what Varus is actually intending, he's kind of no help in this scene. Pycelle is being no help. The young Riverlands knights, led and exemplified by Edmure, want to strike back slash scatter across their territory with no real strategic forethought. Loras just wants his personal vengeance, uncoupled from justice for the small folks. So, as it has, again, as I said, in council sessions, it all kind of falls on Ned here. <laughs> and since he can't go himself, he summons a variety of men to carry out his sentence. I like that he picks, he's picking men from a variety of regions. It's interesting that he picks Thoros, uh, specifically to gather up men. I'm curious what, who the <laughs> men are that Thoros gathered up. Are they friends of his? Are they sellswords? Or who might, are they like just household people hanging around King's Landing like he is? I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure, but. If, if I had to guess, I would say that it's probably people who are, like, admire Thoros from the melees. Yeah. He's like, probably got a lot of fanboys. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, he's a famous enough dude that, like, if he says, like, I want to go kick ass in the Riverlands, you know, yeah, he's right. with me, some, you know, young idiots are going to be like, awesome, this sounds great. And, you know, they're going to find out what that's really like when they hit the Mummers Ford. Poor bastards. Ugh. This is true. But yeah, I like I like that Ned is picking this variety of men, kind of gathering all the realm at his back, symbolically speaking, by choosing someone like Thoros, but also other local lords, Beric from the marches, and putting him in charge. And yeah, I, I as we've been saying, I think this is Ned's boldest and smartest and most admirable move as Hand of the King. And I think it's important that these are combined, that... 
it's it's easy to fall into the evil will always triumph because good is dumb logic <laughs> that I think the show indulges in a little too much. And I think it's important that Ned's most canny move is also a moral move in contrast to the other people in the room who are either being either corrupted or cynical that Ned is the only one saying to the small folk, I can't bring your dead back, but I can try to find some version of justice for them. That's not just retributive vengeance. That's not just killing the equivalent to you in Clegane territory. Mm-hmm. I can try to actually do something that will make a statement that it was wrong what was done to you. And that's, I mean, that's the thing about the the young knights who want to go off and kill small folk in the Westerlands. That's horrible in its own right in terms of those lives, but it's also... It, it sullies any possible legitimacy and justice they could have in this because then they're they're no better than the raiders who hit the Riverlands. So there's there's no statement being made and there's no justice. And the, the if the throne indulged in that, the throne would lose the kind of moral authority it would have over Tywin to begin with. So I think it's really important that Ned takes the stand. And as Stephen said, it would have worked if the timing had just been slightly differently yeah. in terms of Robert coming back. I think I think it's also interesting two about who he selects for the leadership of the band heading off to confront Gregor the game. Uh, Beric Dondarrion is a a lord from the Dornish Marches. He's not in any way connected to the conflict between the Riverlands and the Westerlands. He sends his own men who are also not at this point connected to the coming war between the Riverlands and the Westerlands. And he has a couple other dudes there, Thoros and uh, I can't remember that one, that other knight that he, he selects there. But it seems like these are all people that are disconnected from the conflict that won't visit vengeance on the Lancers because they don't have a personal stake in the conflict that's erupting there. What they have is the is the moral high ground and they have the King's Banner. And I think that's really, really smart on Ned's part. And I, we'll let Steve talk about that towards the end of this this episode. But I, I just wanted to, to note that that uh, that Ned is acting very intelligently here in a way that does forestall Basic, basic ideas that he's favor, favoring his wife's family, for instance. I mean, that would probably be an accusation that would be thrown Ned's way if he had been like, okay, River, River Lords, go, go get him, go get him, boys. Because then it'd be like, well, you know, you're basically alienating the rest of the kingdom in order to favor your own family, which is, of course, a very Tywin move. And thankfully, Ned is not Tywin. It's, he would be acting more as a partisan, which would still be understandable to a certain extent, given that the Westerlands are inflicting these atrocities. But you can see Ned striving to be acting with centralized authority and acting as though he is not Lord Stark, husband of Lady Tully. Yes. But is the hand of the king, acting on behalf of the realm. And that's that's very important for, for Ned, uh, especially since uh, Robert ain't hanging around to do the job for him. Speaking of Robert not being around... <laughs> That leads us into our foreshadowing and groundwork because we do see hints in this chapter that Robert ain't going to be around for much longer. Yeah, you know, there's a short couple, there's a short sentence here where Ned thinks to himself, damn Aegon for his arrogance, Ned thought suddenly, and damn Robert and his hunting as well. Which, you know, in, in isolation is kind of a line of Ned just expressing frustration here, but it does kind of foreshadow that the hunt will end up damning Robert because, of course, the pig is going to get Robert and Robert's squires are going to get him super drunk before the pig actually gores him. So thanks, Ned. You got Robert killed. Congratulations. Clearly. With your, with your not subtle foreshadowing, you got your friend killed. <laughs> we did we did allude to this a bit earlier, but Tywin's true plan was a bit more complex than what, uh, than what Ned had figured out at this point. I'll let Steve talk us through that. Sure. So, um, you know, as we, uh, you know, have already seen Tywin is trying to provoke a military response from the Tullys as the aggressors. He's also trying to like militarily weaken their position because previously all of their forces were at the, the 
Golden Tooth to try to like bottle up the Westerlands and prevent them from from reaching the Riverlands. Now they're spread out, which is going to allow Tywin and Jaime to like punch straight through and you know put River on under siege and then just rampage the hell all over the Riverlands. But we learn in uh, A Storm of Swords Arya Three that um, there was this additional part of the plan. Quote. Uh, only six Winterfell men remained out of the twenty her father had sent west with Beric Dondarrion, Harwin told her, and they were scattered. "'Twas a trap, my lady. Lord Tywin sent his mountain across the Red Fork with fire and sword, hoping to draw your lord father. He planned for Lord Eddard to come west himself to deal with Gregor Clegane. If he had, he would have been killed or taken prisoner and traded for the imp, who was your lady mother's captive at the time. Only the Kingslayer never knew Lord Tywin's plan, and when he heard about his brother's capture, he attacked your father in the streets of King's Landing. And what I love about that is it's so typically Tywin, right? It's not enough to, like, get his own back. He has to inflict a a symbolic humiliation on the Starks by trading Ned for Tyrion. (laughs) True. And it all goes wrong because, like, the Lannisters can never get on the same goddamn page and, like, Jaime goes off half-cocked, which is, like, the story of, you know, his life. Um, But the other thing that I think is really kind of interesting about this is that... Ironically, it's like the Starks who are supposed to be like the, the you know, noble, stupid, you know, uh, charge straight ahead types. But it's Tywin who constantly fails the sort of theory of the mind when dealing with either Ned or Rob. That he always thinks they're going to do exactly what he th- he wants them to do, and then they do something else. <laughs> so, you know, he wants Ned to, to go out. Well... Ned sends this banner instead to, like, get him to to pounce on the bait. Likewise, you know, he thinks that, like, he can steamroll right over Rob Stark and that, like, you know, Rob's either going to, like, come charging at him or run away because he's a green boy. And then, like, all of a sudden, you know, he's left with, like, half of his his armies and Rob's, you know, in between him and everything that matters. Hmm. Um, so, you know, that kind of gets me to, like, the reputation of Tywin Lannister is, like, he has a very mixed record. Yes. You know, and if it wasn't for, like, Martin's thumb on the scales, he could have gone down much in the way that previous Lannisters have, have gone down swinging in the Riverlands. <laughs> true That's that. very true. And you, you bring up a great point about the Lannister failure of communication, because that just really stands out across the series as a whole. Like, once we learned that it was Littlefinger and Lysa who killed John Aaron, the fact that Cersei didn't tell Pycelle anything is just astonishing. <laughs> Especially since she, he, she knows he's working for her dad. Cersei and Jamie seem very sloppy about when they're going to kill Robert and how. The, I mean, Cersei's conspiracy with Lancel and Tyrick both, A, put, could potentially have not worked, very easily could not have worked. And also just leaves Lancel and Tyrick out there as two, like, easily manipulatable kids who know way too much. Yeah. Cersei's just kind of let this information fall through the sieve. And as you say, Martin's thumb has to keeping on the scale to prevent the Lannisters from losing everything because of it. So yeah, Tywin and the Lannisters as a whole are definitely way luckier than they seem to get credit for. Yes, indeed. The last bit of foreshadowing we want to touch on is about uh, Ned's downfall and death. Not Robert's this time, but Ned's. Obviously, you have Illyn Payne, quote, loving his work at the end of this chapter. That's setting the foundation for him being Ned's executioner at the climax of A Game of Thrones. But before Illyn can have the opportunity to chop Ned's head off, George has to set the foundation for that. So we do see Martin thumbing the scale against Ned really kind of more than ever in this chapter. And one of the ways is that he has to scale down Ned's military presence in King's Landing. Yeah, so back in Eddard 6, 
We know that Ned sent 20 of his guardsmen to assist Jano Slint in keeping the king's peace in the city. So they joined the gold cloaks. I'm actually, I'm actually curious. I don't know if this ever gets resolved at any point. What happens to those dudes in the gold cloaks? Do they stay in the gold cloaks? Are they still there in King's Landing by the end of it? Dance with Dragons? I actually don't know that, that question, maybe. If I had to guess, probably stabbed in the back by their so-called comrades. Fair. You know, when the notice was given. That's fair. Yep. Yeah, so that, that that makes a lot of sense. Then in Eddard 9, he loses his captain of the guards in Jory Cassell when Jamie Lannister's men kill him, as well as the two other dudes there. And then here in Eddard 11, Ned voluntarily sends 20 more of his household guard to accompany Lord Beric Dondarrion in his justice quest. And, you know, I, I feel like so many people want to say that Ned is stupid for doing this, but Ned's motivations in sending his own men... It's completely understandable and it's completely noble and it's really good on Ned's part. But it does make him extraordinarily vulnerable and as, as he thinks about his next chapter when he thinks, with Jory dead and Alan gone, Fat Tom had command of his household guard. The thought filled Ned with vague disquiet. Tomard was a solid man, affable, loyal, tireless, capable in a limited way. But he was near 50 and even in his youth he had never been energetic. Perhaps Ned should not have been so quick to send off half his guard and all his best swords among them. So half of Ned's guard being sent away from Ned when he enters that throne room to confront Joffrey and Cersei and Eddard fourteen is a huge fucking deal. I mean, it's worth noting, though, that even if Ned had his full contingent of guardsmen, Jory Cassell had somehow survived the Brawl in King's Landing, Cersei and Littlefinger had the full contingent of Lannister's sworn men in King's Landing and all of the gold cloaks in their pocket when Ned comes to the throne room. So, I mean, even if Ned had the additional 40 swords that he hadn't given to Janice Slynn or set off to the Riverlands, it may not have made that much of a difference in the battle and the outcome, but it would have been a more, I don't know, I, I think it would have been a more complex, complicated bloody fight if that had, if, if Ned had kept retained his men at King's Landing. Yeah, in, in the hypothetical that I, I wrote about the, the throne room confrontation, like, the one thing that I could think that would really change is that, like, if it's more of an even fight, you've got all of these really important people in incredibly close quarters. Yeah. And it's, like, quite possible Cersei dies, Joffrey dies, <laughs> Ned dies, like, just bloodbath on all sides, and, like, you know, what the hell do you do then? <laughs> it's like, you know, just, you know, it's why you don't have a gunfight in close range. <laughs> it's, you know, it's just, it can all go really, really bad fast. Um, and, you know, who knows? Littlefinger could have caught a spear or a sword blade or so, you know, just like, if if only, the consequences, if only. <laughs> yeah, like the consequences of like an even fight in those close quarters are potentially just entirely chaotic. That's definitely true. It's interesting to think what would have happened if Ned didn't think he had to rely on the gold cloaks because Littlefinger probably would have still had them fight on behalf of the Lannisters. But Ned might have been his hackles might have been raised going into the throne room if he didn't think the gold cloaks were were on his side. And yeah, it is admirable, of course, for Ned to commit his own men to the fight. It perfectly fits his model of justice. But you compare it to Tyrion in Clash of Kings when he gets rid of the red cloaks who have been working for Cersei by sending them off to escort Cleos Frey back through the Riverlands. And that's, you know, it's definitely less upstanding than what Ned does, but it, I think it shows a more consistently keen grasp of the monopoly and power that you have to have as Hand of the King if you're going to be effective against someone like Cersei. Yes. Yeah, you look at Tyrion's hand, he's always trying to acquire more men and yep. take away everyone else's. And like, you know, for all that I love Ned, like he he doesn't quite grasp that primary rule of like, you know, have hegemony of force. You need to have more men than everyone else because 
that's the only way that you yourself can be secure. Yeah, I think you, you said it perfectly. But I think that takes us to our final little discussion here, which is, of course, that Ned Stark is stupid and that's what ultimately gets him killed. Right, guys? Right? Yes. Uh, Very satisfying. Good. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Nauticast. No, no, of course, that is wrong. That is so, so wrong. Um, we, we see a Ned Stark here who is acting extraordinarily decisively and effectively within the bonds of feudal structure here. So I, we figure we would turn it over to Steve to talk about how Ned's leadership here was good, smart, and then maybe we'll jump back in at the end to rain down on godly terror on all those goddamn immorals who love to slither about in their Ned die because he was dumb, laugh out loud takes. So Steve, take us away. Yeah, so, I mean, we've already gone over uh, a lot of the, the sort of individual points, but I want to sort of like bring them all together here. In this chapter... One, Ned immediately sees what Tywin's doing. Two, he sees what Edmure's doing wrong. Three, not only does he come up with a plan that, like, completely squashes Tywin's actual plan that he doesn't even know about, <laughs> but he succeeds in making Tywin fall for his trap. And, you know, he mobilizes the power, like, the one time, and this is where, like, I kind of wish we'd seen more of this side of Ned mm-hmm. is like he's actually using the office of the hand of the king and it's a very powerful office because you get to decide who's the rebel and who's the loyalists <laughs> you know who is you know standing up for law and order and justice and you know and who is the rebel and the you know attainted you know he really could um you know use it when he had a mind to uh, and that's why I sort of think, like, it's it's not that he didn't know how to do any of this, period. It's I think you're right, Emmett, that, like, Rob kind of regresses him mentally. As yeah. Robert, rather. Like, he goes back to what he was like as a teenager, where, like, he was the, like, you know, the, the dutiful one who's like, Robert, I don't think you should do that. <laughs> I don't you know, know Davey. Yeah. Exactly. John's going to be pissed at us. But, like, it's when Robert goes away that he's like, oh, right, I'm, like, second in command, and since the, you know, first in command isn't interested, I am king, effectively. Yes. And, you know, so come at me, Tywin. And, I, you know, that's what I think makes this more interesting, you know, as a tragedy, is that he comes so close to winning. Yeah. That, yep. you know, as I've said many times, right, there is a difference between tragedy and an asshole getting hit by a truck. Yes. Yes, indeed. No one cares when the asshole gets hit by a truck. You care when someone gets very, very close. Oedipus, you know, is doing the right thing as King of Thebes. And, you know, he's making all of these really insightful moves. And then he just like, his tragic flaw gets the worst of him and down they go. There's got to be that moment of like, oh, it could have gone differently. Yeah. It's the reason why, like, people still go and watch Romeo and Juliet, even though the prologue tells you the entire plot of the play, because you're like, you have that moment where you're like, ooh, maybe this time. <laughs> um, it, it's why, like, the Red Wedding still gets me yeah. after all of these years. Is like, he gives you all of these moments where you think that Rob might make it. Or that Catelyn might make it. And it's like, no. Well, it's a great point. And I think maybe maybe there's a confusion going on between the tone of tragedy and the structure of tragedy. Because the tone of tragedy is you can feel the doom coming long before it actually comes. In the atmosphere, and the dialogue. Like I think of Catelyn's chapters in The Storm of Swords where even in the early chapters before you really know how the plot's going to go down. It's just this aura of death and despair yeah. and decay going on. But the structure of tragedy, as you say... 
has to have these opportunities for escape in ways things could have gone differently. So the, the tone kind of convinces you that it's inevitable, but the structure has to be set up so that it's not. So it, maybe it's easy for people who think back on Ned's chapters or on Rob's story as like being full of all these hints that it's going to go horribly wrong and all these moments where you know as a rereader that these this is going to be a mistake down the line and forgetting these moments where it could have gone very differently and when you, you see both Ned and Rob, as we'll get into when we get to Storm of Swords, is, is are making very smart, well-reasoned decisions and are being brought low by a combination of bad luck and information asymmetry and just Martin's thumb on the scale. So, yeah, I think it's really important that Ned proves he's he's not just a dunce here, both in terms of how we feel about him as a character, but also kind of the overall takeaway from the story. I don't I think it's really limiting to take away from a Game of Thrones that Ned went down because he was too nice or because he was dumb. I think that it doesn't give you much to act upon in terms of how you carry yourself as a political actor. I think it misunderstands what Martin does with Tyrion in Clash, where Tyrion is smarter than Ned in a lot of ways, as we've been saying, but also a less moral person than Ned, and yeah. that eventually does kind of eat away at his satisfaction. So, yeah, I mean, that's... And comes uh, to the same end. And comes to the same end, right? It doesn't matter that Tyrion is more more Machiavellian or more smart because his horrible family dynamics end up bringing him down, whereas Ned's tough, strong family dynamics are kind of reflected in his politics and that's why his vassals are marching to restore his kids in the dance with dragons while tywin's regime falls apart around him and that yeah that's why so even as i said earlier that this isn't one of my favorite ned chapters i think it really is an important chapter and and really vital for especially now dispelling kind of some of the misunderstandings of his story yeah i I also think it's interesting too when we look back at edward six where ned has that vision in his mind of what's going to happen with Mm. when Robert finds out if the if Tywin opposes Robert, we'll march out together and Robert will swing his war hammer. And I think that kind of goes back to your point that both you guys were talking about, about the nature of tragedy and how you structure tragedy, because you always want to give that window of what could have been, right? And I think one of the most and one of the most common questions that I've seen asked in the fandom, and one of the more common ones we could hear asking on the Nauticast is what if questions, right? What if Stannis Baratheon had won the Battle of the Blackwater and taken King's Landing? What if Ned Stark had somehow prevailed in King's Landing? What if, what if Walter Frey hadn't been such an asshole and murdered Rob Stark and all the Northern Host outside of, outside of the twins? And these questions, I was a little bit dismissive of them earlier, but you guys have kind of put them in, con- in a context for me that makes them much more understandable because Martin sets it up so that we do want to ask those types of questions because that's the nature of tragedy. We see ways that these characters can get out of the hard and horrible circumstances that they end up falling into along the way. Even though in the narrative, it's set up so that they are not going to be able to get out of their circumstances. They're not going to be able to survive or their their plans are not going to come to pass. And it's important in the narrative that these plans don't come to ca- come to pass because it progresses the plot forward. It progresses the characters forward. It sends them into new and interesting territories. You know, Ned starts his his arc in A Game of Thrones as Lord of Winterfell. Midway through, he's Lord, he's Lord Hand, and then he's Lord Protector for a hot second before he's down in the Black Cells and then executed on the, on the stairs of Baylor Sept. And I think that's a brilliant way that Martin structures Ned's entire plot. But he also gives him outs that Ned can get out here. If When Ned gets dismissed as Hand of the King, you know, two chapters, two Ned chapters ago, you know, there's that moment where you're like, okay, Ned, now's your, now's your chance. Get out of here. Get out of here, man. We know what's coming. And, you know, as rereaders, 
I, I think like Steve's point too about the, the prologue for Romeo and Juliet talks about how the story is actually going to play out. We know what the story of Ned Stark is going to, how that story is going to play out. We know that Ned's going to be executed on the steps of Baylor Sept. At the same time, we see all these outs for them to get out. And maybe this time Ned Stark will actually survive. Maybe this time Ned Stark will actually take off for King's Landing, take, take off for Winterfell from King's Landing. Maybe Rob Stark will actually bypass the twins and not marry Jane Westerling and do all these different, different things. But it's still, it, it, and I think it's one of the things, one of those things that's really, captivating about rereads and that makes it much more emotional for us that we see the ways out even knowing the end states that these characters end up falling into yes indeed and i think that about wraps us up for game of thrones editor 11 so thanks so much uh, for joining us Stephen, and let the good people my know pleasure. where they can find your work sure so uh you can find my work at uh, race for the iron throne on wordpress and race for the iron throne on tumblr i'm still there I haven't vanished in the apocalypse. Uh, I'm at Stephen Atwell on Twitter. You can find my books uh, on Amazon if you just search for uh, Race for the Iron Throne. Uh, so thanks very much. Hey, man, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. And you also you also have another book besides just Song of Ice and Fire stuff that we wanted oh, yeah. to so, let you play. Um, okay, if you want to see what I do in my day job and, like, why I'm actually a historian and not pretending. <laughs> uh, so uh, I wrote an actual academic book. It's called People Must Live by Work. It's a history of uh, job creation programs from the New Deal to the rise of Reagan. Uh, it's available from the University of Pennsylvania Press or also uh, at Amazon.com. I think it's a, a really interesting time for this book to have come out when all of a sudden job guarantees, which like had been a completely dead language when I started <laughs> doing this project, uh, God, 12 years ago, uh, are now like introduced into Congress and are a major issue in the 2020 presidential race. So uh, check that out. Yeah. I have not read that book yet, but it's actually on my list of books to read. So I'll be, and I think, I mean, you've read some of it, right? Excellent. I have read bits and pieces. Yeah. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to Jeff's pained libertarian expression <laughs> as, as he pages through it. That's going to be. Hey, if, if, if Jim, something like a lawyer can make his way through the whole damn book True. and like True. not throw it out the window, I think, I think you're going to be okay. Oh, that's sure. a stirring, that's a stirring recommendation knowing Jim. So there, there, there you go, folks. So as always rate and review us on iTunes and Google play. We always look forward to your feedback. If you haven't checked out our Patreon, you can at patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F. As we said earlier, we're doing uh, episodes on Fire and Blood right now, so check that out if you haven't. Follow us on social media at not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter, or shoot us an email at not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. Personally speaking, you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics of ice and fire.wordpress.com. So, next time we are, uh, we're going to Editor 12, right? That's what we're doing next time. We're just going to skip this. Song. Nice try, Jeff. Yeah. Nice try. Now, join us next time as Jeff's favorite character in A Song of Ice and Fire frets over life not being like a song in Sansa 3. Uh, it's, it's actually a good chapter, guys. I, I have to admit it. I All Sansa chapters are good. Only you have this problem, buddy. <laughs> we're going to have that discussion when we come to Storm of Swords, Sansa 2, but... That is a that is a year and a half or so down the road, but so I'll limber up for it. I can't I can't wait. So, thanks for listening, and we will see you guys next time. Take care, everybody.